0: chapter 1 of great men and famous women volume 4 edited by charles f horn this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org great men and famous women volume 4 edited by charles f horn chapter 1 william iii of england 1650 to 1702 william prince of orange the third king of england of that name born november fourteenth sixteen fifty was the posthumous son of william the second prince of orange and mary stuart daughter of charles the first of england the fortunes of his childhood did not promise that greatness which he attained his father had been thought to entertain designs hostile to the liberties of the united provinces and the suspicions of the father produced distrust of the son when cromwell dictated terms of peace to the dutch in sixteen fifty four one of the great articles insisted on the perpetual exclusion of the prince of orange from all the great offices formerly held by his family and this sentence of exclusion was confirmed so far as holland was concerned thirteen years after by the enactment of the perpetual edict by which the office of Stadtholder of Holland was forever abolished. The restoration of the Stuarts, however, was so far favourable to the interests of the House of Orange as to induce the Princess Royal to petition on her son's behalf that he might be invested with the offices and dignities possessed by his ancestors. The provinces of Zeeland, Friesland, and Guderland warmly espoused her cause. Even the states of Holland engaged to watch over his education, that he might be rendered capable of filling the posts held by his forefathers. They formally adopted him as a child of the state, and surrounded him with such persons as were thought likely to educate him in a manner suited to his station in a free government. A storm broke upon Holland just as William was ripening into manhood, and discord at home threatened to aggravate the misfortunes of the country. The house of Orange had again become popular, and a loud cry was raised for the instant abolition of the perpetual edict and for installing the young prince in all the offices enjoyed by his ancestors. The republican party, headed by the de Witts, prevented this, but they were forced to yield to his being chosen captain-general and high-admiral. Many persons hoped that William's military rank and prospects would incline his uncle. CHARLES II TO MAKE COMMON CAUSE WITH THE FRIENDS OF LIBERTY AND INDEPENDENCE, BUT THE ENGLISH MONARCH WAS THE PENSIONER OF THE FRENCH KING, AND FRANCE AND ENGLAND JOINTLY DECLARED WAR AGAINST THE STATES APRIL 7, 1672. THE DUTCH MADE LARGE PREPARATIONS, BUT NEW TROOPS COULD NOT SUDDENLY ACQUIRE DISCIPLINE AND EXPERIENCE. THE ENEMY MEDITATED, AND HAD NEARLY EFFECTED THE ENTIRE CONQUEST OF THE COUNTRY. The populace became desperate. A total change of government was demanded. The De Witts were brutally massacred, and William was invested with the full powers of Stadtholder. His fitness for this high office was soon demonstrated by the vigor and the wisdom of his measures. Maestricht was strongly garrisoned. The Prince of Orange, with a large army, advanced to the banks of the Essel. The Dutch fleet cruised off the mouth of the Thames, to prevent the naval forces of England and France from joining. The following year, 1763, Louis XIV took Maestricht, while the Prince of Orange, not having forces sufficient to oppose the French army, employed himself in retaking other towns from the enemy. New alliances were formed, and the Prince's masterly conduct not only stopped the progress of the French, but forced them to evacuate the province of Utrecht. In 1674 the English Parliament compelled Charles II to make peace with Holland. The Dutch signed separate treaties with the Bishop of Munster and the Elector of Cologne. The gallantry of the Prince had so endeared him to the States of Holland that the offices of Stadtholder and Captain-General were declared hereditary in his male descendants. Meanwhile he continued to display both courage and conduct in various military operations against the French. The Battle of Sinef was desperately fought. After sunset the conflict was continued by the light of the moon, and darkness, rather than the exhaustion of the combatants, put an end to the contest, and left the victory undecided. The veteran Prince of Conde gave a candid and generous testimonial to the merit of his young antagonist. "'The Prince of Orange,' said he, "'has in every point acted like an old captain, except in venturing his life too much like a young soldier.' in 1675 the sovereignty of gulderland and of the county of zutphen was offered to william with the title of duke which was asserted to have been formally vested in his family those who entertained a bad opinion of him and attributed whatever looked like greatness in his character to ambition rather than patriotism insinuated that he was himself the mainspring of this manifest intrigue he had at least prudence enough to deliberate on the offer And to submit it to the judgment of the states of holland zealand and utrecht they viewed with jealousy the aristocratic dignity and he widely refused it this forbearance was rewarded by the province of utrecht which adopted the precedent of holland in voting the stadtholdership hereditary in the heirs male of his body the campaign of sixteen seventy five passed without any memorable event in the low countries In the following year hopes of peace were held out from the meeting of a Congress at Nijmegen, but the Articles of Peace were to be determined rather by the events of the campaign than by the deliberations of the negotiators. The French took Condé in several other places. The Prince of Orange, bent on retaliation, sat down before Maestricht, the siege of which he urged impetuously, but the masterly movements of the enemy— and a scarcity of forage frustrated his plans airy had already been taken the duke of orleans had made himself master of boucher marshal schomberg to whom louis had entrusted his arms on retiring to versailles was on the advance and it was found expedient to raise the siege of maestricht it was now predicted that the war in flanders would be unfortunate in its issue but the prince of orange influenced by the mixed motives of honour ambition and animosity, kept the Dutch Republic steady to the cause of its allies, and refused to negotiate a separate peace with France. In October 1677 he came to England, and was graciously received by the King, his uncle. His marriage with Mary, eldest daughter of the Duke of York, was the object of his visit. That event gave general satisfaction at the time, the consequences which arose from it were unsuspected by the most far-sighted at first the king was disinclined to the match then neutral and at last favourable in the hope of engaging william to fall in with his designs and listen to the separate proposals of the french monarch the prince on his part was pleased with the prospect because he expected that the king of england would at length find himself obliged to declare against louis and because he imagined that the english nation would be more strongly engaged in his interest and would adopt his views with respect to the war in this he was disappointed though the parliament was determined on forcing the king to renounce his alliance with louis but the states had gained no advantage commensurate with the expense and danger of the contest in which they were engaged and were inclined to conclude a separate treaty mutual discontent among the allies led to the dissolution of the Confederacy, and a peace advantageous to France was concluded at Nijmegen in 1678, but causes of animosity still subsisted. The Prince of Orange, independent of political enmity, had now personal grounds of complaint against Louis, who deeply resented the zeal with which William had espoused the liberties of Europe and resisted his aggression. He could neither bend so haughty a spirit to concessions, nor warp his integrity even by the suggestions of his dominant passion ambition but it was in the power of the french monarch to punish this obstinacy and by oppressing the inhabitants of the principality of orange to take a mean revenge on an innocent people for the imputed offences of their sovereign in addition to other injuries when the duchy of luxembourg was invaded by the french troops the commanding officer had orders to expose to sail all the lands furniture and effects of the prince of orange although they had been conferred on him by a formal decree of the states of the country whether to preserve the appearance of justice or merely as an insult louis summoned the prince to appear before his privy council in sixteen eighty two by the title of monsieur guillaume comte de nassau living at the hagen holland in the emergency occasioned by the probability of the dutch frontier being attacked in sixteen eighty three The Prince of Orange exerted all his influence to procure an augmentation of the troops of the Republic, but he had the mortification to experience an obstinate resistance in several of the states, especially in that of Holland, headed by the city of Amsterdam. His coolness and steadiness, qualities invaluable in a statesman, at length prevailed, and he was enabled to carry his measures with a high hand. The accession of James ii Second. To the throne of Great Britain in 1685, was hailed as an opportunity for drawing closer both the personal friendship and the political alliance between the stadtholder of the one country and the king of the other. But a totally different result took place. The headstrong violence of James brought about a coalition of parties to resist him, and many of the English nobility and gentry concurred in an application to the Prince of Orange for assistance. At this crisis William acted with such circumspection as befitted his calculating character. The nation was looking forward to the prince and princess as its only resource against tyranny, civil and ecclesiastical. Were the presumptive heir to concur in the offensive measures, he must partake with the king of the popular hatred even the continental alliances which william was setting his whole soul to establish and improve would become objects of suspicion to the english and parliament might refuse to furnish his necessary funds thus by one course he might risk the loss of a succession which was awaiting him by an opposite conduct he might profit by the king's indiscretion and even forestall the time when the throne was to be his in the course of nature The birth of a son and heir in June of 1688 seemed to turn the scale in favour of James, but the affections of his people were not to be recovered. It was even asserted that the child was suppositious. This event, therefore, confirmed William's previous choice of the side which he was to take, and his measures were well and promptly concerted. A declaration was dispersed throughout Great Britain setting forth the grievances of the kingdom announcing the immediate introduction of an armed force from abroad, for the purpose of procuring the convocation of a free parliament. In a short time, full four hundred transports were hired. The army rapidly fell down the rivers and canals from Nijmegen, the artillery, arms, stores, and horses were embarked, and on October 21, 1688, the Prince set sail for Helvotslis, with a fleet of near five hundred vessels, and an army of more than fourteen thousand men he was compelled to put back by a storm but on a second attempt he had a prosperous voyage while the king's fleet was windbound, he arrived at torbay on november fourth and disembarked on the fifth the anniversary of the gunpowder treason the remembrance of monmouth's ill-fated rebellion prevented the western people from joining him but at length several persons of consideration took up the cause and an association was formed for its support at this last hour james expressed his readiness to make concessions but it was too late they were looked on only as tokens of fear the confidence of the people in the king's sincerity was gone for ever but how much soever his conduct deserved censure his distress entitled him to pity one daughter was the wife of his opponent the other threw herself into the hands of the insurgents IN THE AGONY OF HIS HEART, THE FATHER EXCLAIMED, GOD HELP ME, MY OWN CHILDREN HAVE FORSAKEN ME. HE SENT THE QUEEN AND INFANT PRINCE TO FRANCE. PUBLIC AFFAIRS WERE IN THE UTMOST CONFUSION, AND SEEMED LIKELY TO REMAIN SO WHILE HE STAYED IN THE ISLAND. AFTER MANY OF THOSE PERPLEXING ADVENTURES, AND NARROW ESCAPES WHICH GENERALLY befall DETHRONED ROYALTY, HE AT LENGTH SUCCEEDED IN EMBARKING FOR THE CONTINENT the prince issued circular letters for the election of members to a convention which met january twenty second sixteen eighty nine it appeared at once that the house of commons agreeable to the prevailing sentiments both of the nation and of those in present authority was chiefly chosen from among the whig party the throne was declared vacant by the following vote that king james the second having endeavoured to subvert the constitution of the kingdom by breaking the original contract between king and people, and having by the advice of Jesuits and other wicked persons violated the fundamental laws, and withdrawn himself out of the kingdom, has abdicated the government, and that the throne is thereby vacant. By the national consent, the vacancy was supplied by his daughter, Mary, and her husband, William, jointly. The Prince of Orange lost no time in apprising the States-General of his accession to the British throne. He assured them of his persevering endeavours to promote the well-being of his native country, which he was so far from abandoning that he intended to retain his high offices in it. War with France was renewed early in 1689 by the States, supported by the House of Austria and some of the German Princes nor was it difficult for William to procure the concurrence of the English Parliament, when the object was the humiliation of France and her arbitrary sovereign. In the spring of 1689, James landed in Ireland with a French force, and was received by the Catholics with marks of strong attachment. Marshal Schomberg was sent to oppose him, but was able to effect little during the campaign of that year. William, in the meantime, had been successful in suppressing a Jacobite insurrection in Scotland and embarked for Ireland with a reinforcement in the summer of 1690. He immediately marched against James, who was strongly posted on the River Boyne. Schomberg passed the river in person and put himself at the head of a corps of French Protestants. Pointing to the enemy, he said, "'Gentlemen, behold your persecutors.' With those words he advanced to the attack." but was killed by a random shot from the French regiments. The death of this general was near proving fatal to the English army, but William retrieved the fortune of the day and totally dispersed the opposite force. In this engagement the Irish lost fifteen hundred men, and the English about one-third of that number. Disturbances again took place among the Jacobites in the Scotch Highlands. A simultaneous insurrection was planned in both kingdoms while a descent from the French coast was to have divided the attention of the friends of government, but the defeat of the French fleet near Cape La Hogue in 1692 frustrated this combined attempt, and relieved the nation from the dread of civil war. In 1691 the king had placed himself at the head of the Grand Alliance against France, of which he had been the prime mover. He was, therefore, absent on the continent during the dangers to which his new kingdom was exposed his repeated losses in the following campaigns rather impaired than enhanced his military renown though they increased his already high reputation for personal courage the death of queen mary which took place early in sixteen ninety five proved a severe calamity both to the king and the nation She had been a vigilant guardian of her husband's interests, which were constantly exposed to hazard by the conflicts of a party and by the disadvantages under which he labored as a foreigner. In 1696 a Congress was opened at Rieswick to negotiate a general peace, and William did not interpose any obstacles. In the following year the treaty was concluded. The King of Spain's death led to the last event of great importance in William's reign, The powers of Europe had arranged plans to prevent the accumulation of the Spanish possessions in the houses of Bourbon and Austria, but the French king violated all his solemn pledges by accepting the deceased monarch's will in favor of his own grandson, the Duke of Anjou. In consequence of this breach of faith, preparations were made by England and Holland for a renewal of war with France. But a fall from his horse prevented william from further pursuing his military career and the glory of reducing louis the fourteenth within the bounds of his own kingdom was left to be earned by the generals of queen anne the king was nearly recovered from the lameness consequent on his fall when fever supervened and he died on march eighth seventeen o two in the fifty-second year of his age and thirteenth of his reign the character of king william has been drawn with all the exaggeration of pangyric and obloquy by opposing partisans his native country owes him a lasting debt of gratitude as the second founder of its liberty and independence and his adopted country is bound to uphold his memory as its champion and deliverer from civil and religious thraldom. In short, the attachment of the English nation to constitutional rights and liberal government may be measured by its adherence to the principles established at the Revolution of 1688, and its just estimate of that sovereign, and those statesmen who placed the liberties of Great Britain on a solid and lasting foundation.